Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome to Republicans Defeating Trump. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, I'm going to sit down with Mike Madrid, former political director of the California Republican Party and currently a senior advisor to the California Latino Economic Institute. But most importantly, he's a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. You met Mike in our first episode, but today we're going to take a deep dive into his area of expertise and what he calls the Lincoln Project effect. What's causing Trump's weaknesses in the Republican base, especially among college-educated voters, seniors, and faith-based voters, and a roadmap to an electoral college victory? We'll also talk about how the electorate is changing and how Latino voters and racial consciousness will impact how Republicans vote in 2020 and beyond. Mike, it's so good to have you back. It's always great talking to you, Ron. Looking forward to it. So I think you were the one to coin the term the Lincoln Project effect. Yeah. To kick us off, can you <laughs> can you describe what you mean by that? Sure. I, you have to remember as we as the Lincoln Project unfolds and as this campaign for 2020 unfolds, I think it's extremely important that we take a look at where we began and some of the assumptions that we started with back in November, December of last year. Um, as we were heading into the impeachment. Uh, we were seeing a very strong consolidation of not only the the, the Senate Republicans, of course, um, and members of of the House House Republican Caucus, but the average Republican voter was very largely coalesced behind the president. Um, I don't want to say at unprecedented levels, but but pretty darn close. And so you've got you know the group of us decide to kind of launch this effort and get going right in the middle of what appears to be the most difficult time to actually break through. Um, th- this this voter base, this floor that that Trump has always talked about these these voters where he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and nobody would leave him, and it's a pretty bold move, uh, obviously. But I think all of us, because of our expertise and understanding of the Republican base, knew that despite what kind of the prognosticators were saying and what academics and voter modeling was telling us, that there was an opening to get and move a significant or certainly a consequential number of Republican voters to ensure that uh, Trump's defeat. And so we began this project in the middle of what is arguably the most difficult time to break through that voter base. And at that time, the recognition was there was a chasm uh, amongst college-educated and non-college-educated Republicans. There is a direct correlation between how educated somebody is and their disdain or dislike for Donald Trump, his character, his policies, his disposition, his management, certainly, and his governance of the country. And so a lot of what we were poking at and testing uh, were the limits of what that number was going to look like. And that number uh, for Trump in 2016 sat at about 34% of of college-educated white voters, which was a historical low for Republicans. Um, We were already witnessing a hemorrhaging in the base of college-educated voters. And when we started to push and some of the early efforts began and we started to catch fire early, what we started to see was this gap that started to open up 
and it was directly related to um, the influence of the Lincoln, the Lincoln Project messaging Republican to Republican. Now, when yeah. that happens, um, yeah, I started to, to, to use social media a little bit and start saying this is exactly what we were talking <laughs> about. This is the effect of what the Lincoln Project is doing. The power of the Lincoln Project, because there, look, there were millions of anti-Trump groups out there, but there were none that were really specifically Republican on Republican messaging. Right, um, right. You know, um, uh, partisan to partisan and saying, you know, there's a better way to do this. And I think intuitively we understood because we've been working with Republican coalition for so many years that this movement was going to happen. And as it happens with different demographics, and I'll, I'll, we'll keep talking about that through the course of this. Every time we start to see that, I kind of tweet out, you know, hashtag Lincoln Project effect. This is what we were saying was going <laughs> to happen. We told you guys this was going to happen. And while it's a yeah. long way away from the election, and a lot of things can happen, and I'm sure we'll discuss that too. The bottom yeah. line is, uh, I think even at this point, we've already been proven right. We are testing new lows in the president's range, and we are making incursions into the Republican base precisely the way that we predicted it was going to happen for the reasons that were going to happen, and that is the yeah. Lincoln Project effect. Yeah. You know, there's a, we, we do have a ton of ground to cover, uh, but while we're on this topic, there's, there's a Vox article that claims Trump's poll numbers are so bad that they could drag the rest of the party down with him. Um, and on Tuesday, uh, a 24-year-old real estate investor from North Carolina named Madison Cawthorn in the Republican primary to fill the seat vacated by Mark Meadows, uh, uh, his opponent, Lydia Bennett, had a two-to-one fundraising advantage, and Trump and Meadows uh, vocally supported Bennett. So what does it mean that Trump's hand-picked candidate didn't win? It's a very significant development, and I want to speak specifically to that race, but it also there's a broader development that's occurring when we're looking at the polling numbers. And I'm not, I'm, I haven't read the Vox piece, so I do want to take a look at it, but I will say this. There are a couple of anomalous data points that we're seeing, which I think explain why Donald Trump is much softer amongst Republicans than most prognosticators were suggesting. The first is for the past few months, there has been this uh, uh, pesky little gap between polling that is saying what Trump's job approval rating is and what his reelect number is. And that gap has ranged between three and six points in most national polls. And the job approval rating is always higher by, again, three to six points. What that tells us is that the Repu- there are Republicans out there that are saying, yeah, I kind of approve of what he's doing, but no, I'm not going to vote for him in November. Uh, and that's very significant because that three to six points could have a tectonic shift in the outcome of an electoral college contest. And again, it's one of the things that we have been looking at that has been largely anomalous to say there is more downward trajectory for this candidate, for Donald Trump, if we push in the right places. That's one. Two is if you look at some of the targeted Senate seats where the Lincoln Project has been involved, Arizona, Colorado, uh, Maine, uh, in North Carolina, you actually see Trump's numbers higher than the Senate candidates. And I think in many ways, that's uh, a false indicator of, of, of uh, Trump um, and, the drain, and the anchor that he is, he is clearly becoming, which takes us to this third point, and that's the question you asked. Both candidates in this special election, uh, the Mark Meadows uh, chief of staff to the president uh, you know, vacates the seat to become the chief of staff for Donald Trump, leaves an open seat. Uh, Both candidates were pro-Trump. One was very much what we would call an establishment candidate. Donald Trump tweeted his support for her um, 
you had a whole litany, Ted Cruz, all of the, the, the kind of the GOP royalty endorsed this woman yep. and she loses by two to one to a 24 yeah. year old, uh, former staffer or current staffer who at least at this moment is still not even constitutionally old enough to take office. He, he <laughs> will right. be, he will be, he will be sworn in. right, right. But he is right. that young. He is that far <laughs> removed from the political, uh, uh, you know, establishment. And, and even though he was a Trump candidate, there is no question that this is a referendum on Trump and Trump's actions and Trumpism, which again is what the Lincoln Project is all about. So there's a lot of, of warning signs. There's a lot of five alarm, you know, uh, bells going off in Trump world. And again, it's uh, the, the qualifier we always hate to put out there. It's a little too early to make these prognostications, right. but you certainly right. don't want to be in the early summer with these fundamentals moving away from you as strongly as they are. That's a good segue, because I want to talk about what's causing the current weakness for Trump and the Republican base, understanding that this is a snapshot, this is a moment in time, right. these numbers may not hold, and we cannot become complacent, and and we're not going to stop until he's removed from office and Joe Biden is, is sworn in. So CNN uh, reports that 20% of quote-unquote conservatives will vote for Joe Biden with 2% undecided. Trump has a 13% disapproval rating among Republican voters, according to Fox. Uh, Biden has a nine-point lead in the 538 national average. And uh, in the, the latest Fox News poll had Biden with a 12-point lead over Trump. Uh, 60, 63% of Biden voters said that fear, that fear Trump might win as a bigger motivator than enthusiasm for Biden to win. And then last but not least, there's a recent Fox News poll that just came out, um, I think within the last week or so, that showed 28% of white evangelical voters disapprove of Trump's performance. 62% of suburban voters disapprove of Trump's performance. 63% of suburban women disapprove. And fully 18% of Republican voters across the board think <laughs> Trump doesn't care about people like them. Yeah. So what are we to make of <laughs> all th this is these these numbers are just across the board devastating yeah. for 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 the incumbent president and what are we to make of them so each one of these could be a podcast and one of the one of the challenges <laughs> they really could yeah what <laughs> one of the challenges i start have where, start wherever you want yeah um and, and look one of the one of the great things about you know kind of being the voter model and, and political data guy for the uh for the lincoln project because i'm i'm kind of the guy in the back room who's kind of you know, digging at all these nuggets <laughs> and I kind of throw them out to the group and say, Hey guys, take a look at this. I think this might be important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, the, the, the bottom line is, let me give you the bottom line first and then we'll dig in a little bit deep. Here's yeah. what's happening yeah. across all sectors of the Republican base. There is a tremendous sense that the president does not have the competence, management capability, and then leadership skills to handle the crisis that the country is in. That's absolutely clear. And it's not necessarily a values-based proposition, for example, with faith-based voters or an economic consideration with kind of college-educated country club Republicans, as we call them, that are focused more on the financial considerations and might be more socially progressive. It, across, across the GOP coalition, there is this awakened awareness that the president is in over his head and people are dying and the economy is in shambles and he is uniquely unqualified to bring the country together during times of racial strife. All three of these are hitting at the same time, and we are seeing a downward trajectory in all of the polling amongst all of those groups. So here's the quick timeline. 
Again, the Lincoln Project effect began a few uh, weeks after we started launching ads right after impeachment. You started to see the hesitancy amongst college-educated, largely suburban Republicans saying, I've had it enough, I'm tapping out. Trump clearly did this stuff that he was uh, you know, put on trial for in the impeachment hearings, and I, I just can't stomach supporting a party that's not going to even look at evidence. We started to see that movement, and his numbers came down. But where the real, real fascinating movement began was as the COVID outbreak, outbreaks began in serious effects. And what happened was we started to see precipitous declines amongst seniors, 65 plus, as we call them, people over 65, which has been yeah. a bedrock of support for Republicans since right. the, in the history of Gallup polling, right? Trump right. won these voters in a 12 to 17 point range, depending how you look at him. He's now negative nine amongst Biden. That's unheard of. That is unprecedented. Right. And it's, and, it makes and it's perfect- important among, um, among that group. It's important not just not just that it's been a stronghold in preference, but also in turnout because these Pre- are people who vote. Exactly. They're the, the yeah. that is the most reliable as we the term we use is propensity, which means the likelihood mm-hmm. that they're going to vote. You're exactly right, Ron. This is also the group that at least to this point has been hit hardest by the coronavirus pandemic. These are the people that are dying. So they're they, you know suddenly they've kind of broken through this haze and saying, wait a second. Uh, this is talk. This is my friends. This is my spouse. This is me. Now our lives are on the line. And as I mentioned, this is that voter that Trump was talking about when he was saying I could go out on the street and Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I'm not going to lose them. He was right up until this point, and we're going to test the theory in July, uh, Ron. And July is going to be a very critical month, and I think it's probably the most critical month. And, and here is why: um, COVID, Texas, Arizona, Florida are on fire. The, the, the COVID rates are blowing up and they're about to go up exponentially greater as of the, the, the morning of this taping. Houston is now opening up child uh, hospitals because the COVID outbreak is um, uh, ICUs are over capacity and this problem Houston, is just beginning. Houston, which is the largest medical center in the world, yeah. is already at 90 something percent. 97 percent capacity. So they, yeah. they, there's a yeah. major capacity problem. So Trump didn't screw this up once. He screwed it up twice. And we're about to head into this in red states, in areas that epidemiologists were saying, this is coming, get ready, get prepared, do the right thing. The president's messaging has been 180 degrees opposed to that messaging. Uh, even yesterday, Mike Pence still won't say wear a face, wear a mask, a protective face mask. And this, I believe, and, and I've been saying this for a while, we'll see if I'm right. I believe that Trump's base of support is going to move down from its current 39, 38 down to a 35% range, which may not sound like a lot, but that is, again, co- electoral college, uh, in the electoral college, that is, that is a devastating number. Yeah, and that yeah. number is also uh, sorry to keep just kind of running on with the data yeah, here, no, but please, please. this is this is a number where people are going to start seeing uh, senators actively saying we got to do something different here. It won't be specifically anti-Trump, but there's going to start be a lot of wiggling to distance themselves from Trump. People have been asking for months. When is that going to happen? Will that ever happen? And like I said, a lot of prognosticators have said that won't happen. I'm not convinced if these numbers uh, with the COVID outbreak in red states are happening the way they're, they're, they're continuing to and are in all likelihood projected to, you will start to see distancing in mid-July. And I think it will be very, very difficult for the president to recover and coalesce his base at that point. So with all this new data, Mike, should we expect a Biden victory in November? And 
why is the Lincoln Project still working against Trump when the lead is this big? Well, again, and, and here's the qualifier. Every time I put out a data point on social media, everybody kind of points out and says, don't get complacent. Don't you know get cocky. Um, right. And we're not right. at all. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, and my response is always, look, we haven't even gotten started yet. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. is, this is not a yeah. group that takes anything for granted. We've been doing this for a very, very long time. But, but data is what data is. And I think that we are at this point in time where because the shock of Donald Trump winning and pulling essentially what was an inside straight in 2016 so traumatized people that they've lost confidence in what has been you know, used for 80 years as an extraordinarily reliable metric, which is scientific data and scientific polling. So we have to look at ourselves and say, do we follow the one aberration or do we look at the 80-year trend line and say, okay, wait, maybe this data is telling us something? Uh, yeah. I tend to believe that you know the 80-year trend line is, is a pretty good indicator. But as a campaign operative and as, as a practitioner like you are, it's also very important to understand that politics is not just a science. And I think that we've lost a lot of that in the past six to eight years, at least in the last few presidential cycles, where we read these polls, we look at voter modeling, we look at all of this math and, and data points, and it basically you can get lost in that and lose the fact that campaigns are an art form. Politics is both an art and a science. And that's really what the creative stuff, and, and campaigns matter. Campaigns do matter. They affect the outcomes of races. And I'm always very skeptical about academics and people who are or voter modelers, um, uh, mathematicians uh, who, who don't do campaigns. They prognosticate on them, but they don't understand that there is a way to move numbers, and that's what you are seeing here. And so what I would suggest is this. There are a lot of people who are saying that this race is going to tighten up. The historical trend line would suggest that that is entirely uh, accurate and is probably the most likely scenario. But what I'm going to posit here is it could also move in the other direction. There's no, there's nothing saying that Trump's numbers can't go lower. And one of the problems, mm -hmm. I think, in the modern Republican Party is the Trump victory, which, again, he won by a plurality, not a majority of Republican voters, mm -hmm. has been consumed mm -hmm by a type of nationalism and populism that looks nothing like the conservatism that I became a Republican for, or most of the Republicans yeah. in the Lincoln Project joined. It, this is not what we signed up for. Yeah. And as, as the Republican share of the, of the population shrinks, it's beginning to take on some very troubling characteristics. It's become more monolithically white. It's becoming less diverse. And it's becoming attracted and motivated far more by issues that um, are, frankly, white identity politics issues. Building a wall, the Confederate flag, yeah. saying yeah. racially uh, offensive things. These are not an accident. I, mean, I think we all know that. And it's also, while it has historically been indefensible, there is a segment of our population that is motivated by this. It happens to be coincidentally, the fastest shrinking demographic in the country, and that is white, non-college educated, particularly males, but some females as well. Uh, and, and, and white, non-college educated voters have been the bulk of the electorate for, for all of our existence as a nation. And as that shrinks, the politics of that demographic are shrinking. So you are now beginning to see, Ron, yeah, yeah, white, yeah. non-college educated voters behaving like an aggrieved racial minority that they have been, yeah. you know, so critical of yeah. for so many years, motivated largely by cultural and I would argue now racial 
issues as opposed to being concerned about policies or protecting the Constitution or, or worried about social norms or, or issues like that. And that, that's yeah. not healthy for the Republican Party. It's also not healthy for the body politic. And right. it, it's, it's metastasized to a point where, again, at the Lincoln Project, all of us believe that this is a danger. It's literally a threat to the republic. And if we do mm-hmm. not get past this point in time, this transitional phase, where there is a segment of the American population that views itself in decline, and, and make no mistake, Trumpism is, is declinism. It's about losing. Mm-hmm. And that sense of loss creates this visceral reaction, which in many times is aggressive, it's racist, it's argumentative, it's confrontational, and ultimately it's it's destructive. It's anger. It's the politics of anger. If we're not able to mitigate that, it will it will burn down a lot of our institutions. Um, You know, I'm saying that figuratively, but also you know, literally, you're starting to see militia members show up at court at state houses when they don't like Mm -hmm. the way things are going. And um, th- again, that's, that is not a long-term, healthy, or sustainable way for a democracy to function, and it exists, right. and I believe it's going to be with us in a meaningful way for this next decade. Um, but beyond that, I think, and, and I'm hopeful that, that our, our democracy and our society, um, as it changes, and, and keep yeah. in mind, um, this is the first generation of Americans that is of a white European a- uh, majority ancestry that is leaving America to a majority of non-white European ancestry. And, and that's going to test a lot of what our Americanness and our American identity is. You and I have talked about this a lot before. That transition point, this inflection point that we are in, is really uh, 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 the difference between an angry population that feels that it has lost America, which is the Republican Party, and this ascendant group where there's a lot of anger because the promise of America has never been fulfilled. This is largely black and brown voters on the Democratic Party side. Or because we have lost the common understanding of what America, what the idea of America is in the first place. So there's a definition problem. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that the Lincoln Project can be a force in discussing and articulating that in a political construct but the, the question you just posed is the dilemma. I think it's the largest dilemma facing our democracy for the next yeah. 10 years or so. I want to go back to the point you mentioned earlier about Donald Trump winning a plurality and not a majority and how that how that relates to the electoral roadmap going forward. So just to kick off this part of the conversation, can you explain the Electoral College for those who have heard of what it is, understand that it is the mechanism by which sometimes elections do not uh, have the outcome that they expect, and how this plays into the uh, the electoral roadmap for any presidential campaign. For example, Montana has three electoral college votes, and California has fifty five. Uh, just set the table here for folks who are not are not steeped in this math. Yeah, this is always fun, especially when you start trying to explain this to your friends in other countries who are like, "What what is the electoral college, and how does that work?" The, the background for this, and I'll get into the numbers real briefly, but the background is very important. You have to remember that when we were 13 states, there was a big fear amongst the Rhode Islands of the world and the Vermonts of the world that New York would dominate everybody because there was a there was a more bigger population. And the whole the whole threat of the whole fear of democracy that it would be controlled by what they articulated as the mob, right? This this the, the majority, the tyranny of the majority could kind of run roughshod over the protection of minority rights. One of the protections they put in there was this idea called the Electoral College. 
And the Electoral College basically said that based on population, you get a certain number of electors or votes in the Electoral College. As we added more states, we now have 538 uh, electoral votes. Um, and so what you will hear a lot of people talking about is that the, the magic number is 270. If you get 270, if Trump gets 270 votes, he's the next president. If Biden gets 270 votes, he's the next president. The question becomes, what is the roadmap to get there? The, pro- the difference between the popular vote and the electoral college outcome is really, and a lot of people don't like this, but it's really one of the safeguards that the founders envisioned. They were worried about the the, the Californias and the New Yorks and the Texases dominating the Wyomings and the North Dakotas and the you know uh, smaller states that might have separate representation. The idea was how do we keep a United States together? And one of these things, and it's it's you know it's it's certainly worthy of discussion, was this idea of the electoral college. So as you mentioned quite accurately, California has almost twenty times more electoral votes than a state like Montana. But the challenge becomes when uh, we, you become as, as partisan as we have become and blue states become as blue as they are and red states as red as they are, you start to see these dramatic variations between um, the electoral college outcome and the popular vote outcome. And we started to see signs of that in the early 2000s, and we saw it on glaring display in 2016. So... There is a way to cobble together 270 votes for Republicans based largely on a more rural, uh, sparsely populated uh, regional vote share than the popular vote where a Democrat can win so commandingly in places like California. And that outcome uh, creates a lot of social tension, but it is important, and I'm not making an argument for or against it, I'm just trying to explain it, that what happened in 2016 is exactly what the founders intended, that the large populated states could not dominate the other states if union if union was what was important to us at that point. We were much more focused on the individualism of each states of each state. We had a much weaker federal system at that time, and that was the goal what the founders were trying to accomplish. So Mike, can you talk about the mechanics a little bit about uh, how the electoral college works and how it isn't it isn't a national system but rather a state by state patchwork of of different rules and you know some states have faithless electors and and uh, it's it can actually be really confusing to folks who who are trying to understand this yeah in some ways it's confusing to people who are very involved in this professionally too so let's yeah. walk through a little bit of it Sure. Um, there are five uh, again. There are five hundred and thirty-eight. Uh, in the same way that there are five hundred and thirty-eight members of the House of Representatives, it is apportioned, and the number of electors you get is apportioned by the population. And so, um, each state again is in control of, of not only the mechanics of their own voting processes, which we hear a lot about right now, right, with voting rights and voting locations and voting by mail. All of these are decided at the local level or at the statewide level, I should say. So is the way that electors are handled. The Constitution says this is the way the process works, but each state allows for a different variation. So, for example, some states are required in their own state's constitution that um, if a state votes 50% plus one for one candidate, then those electors have to be committed to voting the way that the, the population or the, voting, the voters of that state voted. 
There are, are things called faithless electors. In other states where there is not that requirement, it is entirely possible that electors can vote um, against the um, way that their state voted in its own popular vote. So, for example, if let's just say California, because I'm in California, if California decided to vote for Donald Trump, which of course would never happen, uh, <laughs> these you know 55 electors would go and meet in the state capitol, and they could all decide, or one or two or three of them could decide that they were going to cast their vote for Joe Biden, regardless of the fact that uh, Donald Trump won the election. And these faithless electors were very important uh, in the minds of the founders because it was yet another safeguard to protect against the um, the whims of public opinion and to protect, ironically, the country from from a despot or somebody who was not qualified to kind of govern or to lead. Is you would have yet another safeguard, and so we we don't we vote for electors. That's what people don't realize is. We don't vote for the president of the United States. We are literally voting for electors state by state. These electors meet um, at a time prescribed by the U.S. Constitution. In every state, they gather, usually in the state capitol. They cast their votes almost uniformly for the person who won in their state. Those states um, then um, cast their votes and they officially tally them all up, and then we have our president sworn in on January 20th of the following year. Who who are the electors themselves, the people? That's a great question. are actually casting these ballots? Because this no one really knows. I couldn't name one for you. Yeah, and time was that this was a, um, you know, it tended to be kind of officials in the state uh, back in, back in the, the founding days. It has now turned more to be kind of more party loyalists, um, so the, 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 the likelihood of a faithless elector has significantly diminished. Oftentimes it's donors. Oftentimes it's symbolic. It might be somebody who's, uh, you know, a young voter, uh, voters of color, voters of a certain demographic that might meet, you know, a certain symbolic. Um, but usually they tend to be either an activist closely involved with the campaign or somebody that they know that the campaign can trust. And, and who's in charge of selecting them? Uh, each each presidential campaign uh, submits its list of electors to each state uh, prior to the election, and then that slate of electors is called once the vote is certified in each state, mm. and then that certification is made official. It says who actually won the popular vote or, or you know what the outcome was. They then call the electors to gather, and then the actual officiating. Um, action is taken by those electors because again we we are literally voting for electors we're not voting for a president those electors then vote it is it is largely ceremonial but it is a constitutional um act and then those elector votes are um counted tallied and the the person who receives a minimum of 270 becomes the next president of the united states and the challenge with the electoral college is that um, as America is transforming demographically, those transformations are occurring largely in very specific areas of the country. And the Electoral College battleground states, your traditional uh, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, um, North Carolina, these are amongst the least diverse states in America. Now, there are some like Florida, which is very diverse, um, and there's increasingly uh, states are coming into play like Texas and Arizona, Georgia, which we should maybe talk about a little bit. But the, the Electoral College was never uh, the politics of the time when we established the Electoral College 
were really about factionalizing and protecting against interest, the mobilization of interest. What was never envisioned was this extraordinary and tumultuous demographic change where there is this heightened tension and our president is driving and stoking racial resentment and racial anger between what are essentially white states and, and diverse states. Um, and that's while it's an oversimplification, as a Californian who saw this play out real in real time during the 1990s, uh, I can predict with a very you know high degree of confidence that what, what California went through in the course of the last 20 years is what America will go through in the next 20 years. So the only roadmap to, to, to replicate this inside straight that Donald Trump pulled off, the only roadmap he has is to keep the same number of uh, white, non-college-educated voters, of which he won a disproportionate record-setting share of, he needs to make sure that he either gets 3 to 5% more of the black vote to win places like Philadelphia and North Carolina and I think Michigan is out of reach now, but but that was uh, part of the part of the, the um, of the recipe in 2016. And it's why he does focus on that voter segment. He doesn't need to put a lot on there, but he needs to put just enough to either keep them off of Biden, which is why you see them running a lot of negative commentary and narrative on Biden on on um, black and white issues, racial issues. Um, but he also, I think, would 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 prefer to kind of make pick up two or three points, two or three percentage points. If he's able to do that, and that's an odd coalition, um, then he can potentially you know, replicate what he did in 2016. There's a lot working against that, um, especially, and I think this is important, the expansion of the electoral roadmap for Joe Biden. Yeah. And I think maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but it uh, raises questions then if that's the strategy, if there even is a strategy, and I don't believe there is a strategy. Uh, uh, so why right. he why he can't even be bothered to denounce the Confederate flag and in fact is stoking tensions over it and anyway we'll we'll get into that a little bit later mm-hmm. so but while we're talking about the electoral path to victory so uh, Michigan Wisconsin Pennsylvania got a lot of attention in 2016 mm-hmm. should they be the only focus now uh, when we see. Um, you know, 538's polling averages right now have Michigan at at Biden plus 10.7. Uh, Wisconsin is Biden plus 9.6. Pennsylvania is Biden plus 8.1. So are these still going to be as crucial? Uh, these swing states going to be st- as crucial as they were in 2016? Or are we, are we looking at a change in the map? Well, we're looking at a change in the map, and it's happening because the the regional demography in the country are changing. There's really three areas that we should be looking at. I'm going to talk to them. I'll I'll talk to them. I'll try to be as brief as I can about the regions. The first uh, area, most of those states that you mentioned, I would lump those into kind of the traditional battleground state. This is the Ohio, Pennsylvania, particularly East Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa. These are states that don't have a lot of diversity. These are not states that are diversifying a lot. These are the Rust Belt states. These are the states that Trump was talking to with his American Carnage inaugural speech, right? This is the place where industry has left and is leaving, and there's a sense that America has been left behind. This has largely been the focus of his discussions and his messaging and his tone when he's talking about America first policies and being against the globalists and being taken advantage of by the international order and all at the expense of the American worker. That's what he's trying to do. That's his base. But there are two other areas and two other regions that are significantly different that have emerged in this time. They've been emerging for, for, for some time, but they are, they are, they are, um, they are worth mentioning because they are changing the way the map needs to be run, at least since it has been over the past 30, 40 years. And that is this. 
The first is when you look at North Carolina and you look at Florida and Georgia, then there's a new South that has emerged, right? This is not your traditional old Nixon Southern strategy. These, the idea of the Confederate flag is not only not responsive to a significant number of upwardly mobile Southerners or young Southerners, it's openly detested and opposed by them. And so this strategy, this Confederate strategy that he's been running, um, curiously is working uh, with non-college educated whites in, in northern states. I mean, we, we've pointed this out. Uh, wow. On social media, where we see, like in Maine, yeah. he goes up to Maine and there's a Confederate flag, and then he shows yeah. up in Michigan and there's yeah. Confederate flags. It's like, you know, what the hell's going on here? And what you realize, is, of course, it's not about regional pride or Southern pride. We all know what it's about. It's just been so brazen, and so that's who he's really talking to. But when you start seeing the North Carolinas and the Floridas and the Georgias start coming into into clear play here, it's because what you're seeing is white voters are changing. And that's really one of the untold stories of 2020. And when we look back, regardless of how things come, uh, we're, we're, talk- we're using the term white voters, which we never used before 2012. It's going to be really a, a, a real important piece of dissection. The third area is the, is this, is the Sunbelt strategy. And the Sunbelt is quickly becoming the new base for the Democratic Party, it's no longer just the New England and and California West Coast states where the you know cultural elites hang out. The Latino vote, specifically, uh, along with white uh, college educated progressives, are dramatically changing the Sun Belt. It's why Arizona is very much a battleground state now. It's why Texas is as close as it is, and it's why states like. Um, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, which used to be battleground states 10, 12 years ago, are now solidly blue. It's because of, one, the rise of the Latino vote, but also because of, frankly, college-educated, high-tech workers leaving California who are repulsed by the politics of, of the Confederacy. Yeah, and the polling averages in those states you just mentioned are are, are a whole lot tighter with Arizona. Arizona, Biden's currently up uh, almost five. Texas is, Trump is a plus 0.3. Yeah. Is that, that's just, it's shocking. Uh, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the, when I'm looking at the numbers and again, there's the, the, at, at this point in time, and we may be talking about a different roadmap, you know, in, in, in August or September, but at this moment in time, the map is becoming sure. so expansive that, you know, there's a million ways to get there, not a million, but there's a lot of ways to get there. The safest route to 270 for Biden, in my estimation, has always been Michigan, which he's, he's just putting that away. He's just winning so commandingly. Uh, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, Republicans won this in 2016, but the last time we won it was 1988. That's really a blue state. There was just a significant overperformance of non-college educated whites in eastern Pennsylvania and a depressed black turnout in uh, the Philadelphia area uh, specifically. So that that should come back online. If you if, if Biden wins those two, it's a pick 'em. Uh, any other state, and it's done. And the state I think that again is important um, is Arizona because it's the sign of a new emergent um, base of support for 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 what America is becoming. Curiously, the messaging strategy that works in Michigan and Pennsylvania is not what works in Arizona. And and yeah, the Lincoln Project is going to be involved in a lot of the, the creative stuff, which I think will be definitive in defining how these these new emergent 
um, voter groups are going to define uh, our politics for the next generation. And I think we're going to see some really exciting stuff. But it is important to understand it's not one key thematic. These are highly regional, highly varied, highly distinct demographics that respond to very different messages. So I, I, just to put a bow on this part of the conversation, uh, for, for everybody listening who's, who's maybe overwhelmed by all of the numbers and, and a little bit uh, maybe confused by the data and, and the different dynamics in play in all of these states, what do you say to someone who isn't even sure, like, should we be watching the polls right now? Should we be paying attention to the polls? Because there was a lot of, uh, a lot of hand-wringing after 2016 about the polls being wrong. Right. And, and in fact, actually, a lot of the polls themselves were right uh, if we were looking at the popular vote, but they didn't, they didn't have any, uh, bearing on the electoral outcome because of the electoral college map. So what do you say to folks who are trying to make sense of all of these numbers all over the map and, and whether or not they should read, if anything, uh, read anything into them or, or read too much into them? That's a great question. I'm glad you, you, you clarified that point and stressed this to the listeners. The polling was not wrong. In 2016, right. the, polling, the polling was right. right. The, the right. challenge is they were not polling uh, for an electoral college, and that's that's a much right. harder consideration. But the and right. and all of the polls test the national considerations, at least the big ones that you're seeing, and then they've got larger sub or smaller subsets of voters in the battleground states. Fox News poll did that. The Siena poll did that for the New York Times. The pollsters have gotten better, and the media outlets that are you know producing these polls have gotten better at understanding. We need to look at battleground states with a smaller uh, filter and a more representative samples so that they can kind of prevent what happened last time. So here's what, here's what my advice is. Uh, you know, I, I look at polls every day and, and, and love doing it, and I, that's just kind of the, the, the weird person I am. But even, even now for somebody who does this for a living, what I'm looking for is what I'm looking for is the downward trajectory for Trump. I'm looking to see if he can go lower because that is as significant a finding, I would argue, even more than the likelihood of him closing the gap and, and making this a tighter race. And here is why. The softness of the Republican base has always been, in my estimation, the, most, the single most determinative factor of whether or not Trump will be reelected. There are a lot of arguments to suggest that that is not, but that is mine. And I will also say at the Lincoln Project, that's what we are uniquely positioned to do the best is talk to talk to Republican voters and have them take a pass on on Trump and uh, at, at, you know, at a minimum or vote for Biden uh, as a secondary consideration. So there's a lot of argument about turnout and political polarization. A lot of people had said um, have been saying very loudly for three years, um, you know, this will come down to 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 uh, a, a traditional standard partisan uh, turnout model. I have always said that I don't think that that is the case. I have always believed that Trump has more downside than anybody has been giving recognition to. At least at this point, that has proven true. That may, may, may you know, course correct. It may get tighter. I think the likelihood is that it will get tighter. But I'm also not going to um, uh, say, and and you know, this is a, in my profession, this is kind of a bold statement. I think Trump still has some downward trajectory. I think he can still go down, and July is going to test that theory. So if you're watching the polls, you should be watching the volatility. Don't get scared by them. Don't lose sleep by them. If he starts to move up, you know, Trump moves up two or three points, it doesn't mean that the end of the world is coming. What we're watching really is the fluidity of the race, is how much these voter segments move, because the more fluidity there is, the more we adjust our strategy and messaging to these groups. 
the, the, the less fluidity there is, the, the, the greater likelihood there is that this race just completely stratifies, sets in cement, and, um, and you know, rides out at its current trajectory for the next few months. I don't expect that that will happen, but I am um, pleased and not surprised because we've been saying the Lincoln Project effect is going to move his numbers down, and that has happened to this point. So shifting now to Latino voters, which you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the impact that you see them having on the election this November. In 2016, uh, Latino voters voted 61% to 31% for Hillary Clinton. And right now, Biden leads them 64 to 25 of registered voters in the New York Times Siena College poll. Uh, what impact are they going to have? Well, it's a great question, and it's one that I've been kind of dissecting for my entire adult career. For the past 30 years, I've been kind of working on this the Latino vote question because at the time in California, Latinos were, you know, 6-7% of the electorate, but all of the trends were suggesting that the uh, Latinos, we were going to define and redefine, you know, California politics. And that has happened, and I think is proving a useful roadmap to what is happening in the country right now. So a couple of quick important things to know. Latinos will surpass black voters in 2020 in this November as the, lar- the second largest voter group behind whites. That's the first time in American history that that has happened. And the rate at which Latinos are increasing as a share of the electorate is starting to hit this kind of exponential rate. And it's why I think a lot of this new awakened ra- racial consciousness has manifested itself in this country very differently. The, the construct with which we have viewed race in, in America historically, for very good reason, has always been the struggle between black and white. Our original sin of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, the current systemic racism that uh, we are confronting as a nation has always been through the lens of this original sin. What is changing is the Latinization of America is forcing this politics to, uh, to be addressed more directly. What do I mean by that? Well, as long as America was black and white, and, and blacks are about 10%, give or take, of the, of the population and have been since the end of the Second World War, there was never a fear that whites would be replaced by Latinos or by, by blacks, excuse me. Um, th- that was always going to be the number. And the question was, how did we handle this racial dynamic? And in many ways, it just allowed our country to kind of ignore the problem or keep punting it. But as Latinos become a much more significant share of the overall American electorate, whites are oftentimes feeling replaced. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it it goes back to our earlier point in discussion that it's creating a new politics of identity in the Republican Party. The California Republican Party is over 80% white. The National Republican Party is almost, uh, is about 85% white in a country that is, uh, Dramatic looks dramatically different than that. And the party is taking on policy positions and candidates that are driving out more diverse voices. So the party itself is actually becoming more monolithic. And when you understand that, you understand why it retrenches to, to fewer and fewer states that are less and less diverse. And it it's screaming now on these racial identity politics issues to to goose turnout even higher. That is literally the Trump strategy. It is the only way that it can possibly win. 
There's a couple of problems with that. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. There's a uh, lot yeah. of problems with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna we'll set aside the moral implications <laughs> let's, for a moment. This, this episode is about math. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, so let's talk about what the math part of that is because there is some math yeah. here. Latinos again are largely um, not entirely, but can largely uh, attribute the are uh, you can attribute the rise of the Latino vote to states like Nevada and Colorado and New Mexico and certainly California and southwestern states moving decidedly towards a democratic direction. I want to say that uh, with one huge caveat. There is a plethora of evidence to suggest that the Latino vote is an anti-Republican vote. Okay, It's rejecting this politics of white nationalism that does not mean it's a pro-democratic vote. And it is yeah. why the Democrats have had such a historical problem with getting turnout amongst Latinos when there is no existential Republican threat on the ballot. And hmm. part of that was on full display when Joe Biden, for example, in the primaries, Joe Biden wins overwhelmingly with black voters in South Carolina in the, in the second primary, right, right after the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire. It goes to South Carolina or the, uh, uh, the yeah. Nevada caucuses also. At, at South Carolina, he wins commandingly with black voters and puts the race away. Saved uh, his campaign. Saved actually. his campaign and saved the trajectory. Yeah. It, it changed completely the trajectory of the 2020 election. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same night, Bernie Sanders wins by very, very wide margins in California amongst Latino voters. So there's a huge chasm between black and brown voters. But the Democratic Party has historically treated them as one and the same for a whole host of reasons, which again is the point of another podcast. But it's really important to understand in terms of Latino voters, the the party that is able to the party that is able to capture the hearts and imagination of an aspirational ascendant middle class voter will win this fast growing demographic. It is very unlikely at this point because of the Trump era that the Republican Party is even remotely competitive anymore. And the irony is that we used to call this same voter the Reagan Democrat. We were very, we were very proud of the fact in the 80s as Republicans that we had appeal across party lines. We bragged about it. We gave them a name. For a generation, we, you know, we focused on that voter group. It's how do we keep winning the blue-collar, culturally conservative, you know, um, works every day, lives by the rules, plays by the rules, you know, just wants the American dream Democrat. That was, that was our voter. That's how we built commanding majorities. That voter is, is no longer a white voter. That is the only difference. They have all the same demographic characteristics. It's blue collar. It's largely non-college educated. It's the working man and women. And these are culturally conservative people, higher, you know, attendance at church than, than non-Hispanics. Uh, uh, all of these are the same characteristics of the Reagan Democrat with one notable exception. They're not white. And so we, ha- we no longer talk about Reagan Democrats. We no longer talk about getting Democrats at all. We, we vilify them. That's the goal now is to double down. And so w- the way this is manifesting itself in real time is states like Arizona and Texas are increasingly coming into play. I think Arizona will go for Biden this, this year in 2020. I'm not sure Texas um, is, although I think there's every reason to be looking very, very, very closely at Texas. Ron, you know, you know how closely we're looking at Texas. Um, we don't want to say anything at this point, but we're looking very closely at Texas. And if, if uh, Texas will be in play and a battleground state in 2024, if not 2020, um, but we're looking very closely at it. 
So while we're on this topic of race, um, one of the first lessons that I learned in politics from someone who is now a very senior official in the Trump campaign was that politics is a game of addition and not subtraction. And what I want to know from you is uh, given there was a recent Quinnipiac poll showing 12% of Republicans disapprove of Trump's handling of race relations and 16% of Republicans say Biden would do a better job with race relations, regardless of who they intended to vote for. How do you think Republican voters will respond to current nationwide questions about race? And what does it mean long-term for the Republican party? Again, given that we know politics 101 is addition and not subtraction. It's that's the that's the million dollar question, right? And it's one I've I've spent a big part of my career thinking about. The, the first thing I want to address though is, you know, in many ways Trump Trump has changed a lot of the way we view politics. It is um not does not escape the irony doesn't escape me that it's a Trump, you know, person who's saying that because Trump is arguably the first person who's won the presidency by subtraction. Well, to be clear, that was a very long time ago, okay. <laughs> and uh, long before I ever imagined he would work for someone like Donald Trump. Yeah, so. and and that, the fact that he are and that he is 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 telling, and it, it really gets to the yeah. answer to your question, which is this: um, the Republican Party has become a populist nationalist party. It is no longer a conservative party, and endemic to nationalism is the idea that there is a definition of America, and it has to meet a certain criteria. And if you look at all of the survey work, whether it's how how uh, Trump is viewed on race relations, or even whether you know whites feel are experiencing more discrimination than blacks in America, Republicans overwhelmingly are showing the characteristics of a party that is coalescing behind race. What is changing, and what is very significant, is the split between college-educated white voters, college-educated white Republicans, especially women, and non-college-educated. Uh, Republicans. That is the defining issue. And if this coalition splits, uh, it will break the back of the of the populist nationalist party, the Republican Party as we know it. It is a coalition that will probably not reconcile, and you will start to see the Republican Party be a very highly regional party, a very white party, a very nationalist party that looks a lot like the National Front in France. It's not really ideological they're not really concerned about party platforms and party positions as much as they're concerned about preserving America or f- France in the case of the National Front. These are very much driven by nationalism. And so that's why folks like us, the Lincoln Project, I think are concerned not just about the future of the Republican Party, but more, more about the future of the country when this is such a sizable segment of the electorate. And so that difference on race is very much correlate to educational attainment rates, but most importantly, the mobility of your family and your individual person economically. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you feel that your prognosis is good economically and that there's hope and that America will be a better day for your children, there's a very good likelihood that you're moving away from Donald Trump. If you think that you have been screwed by the system this grievance politics of politics of anger that the globalists and the Republican establishment have, uh, you know, taken away your job and ruined it for your future. Um, you are very likely to be a strong adherent to Trumpism 
along with the overall decline of not only yourself, and we see a lot of self-destructive behavior with these groups, whether it's the opioid addiction, opioid addiction crisis, higher rates of alcoholism, higher rates of suicide, mass shootings tend to be overwhelmingly white males. Um, there's a lot of social indicators that the stressors of this population in decline are now acting out in a socially destructive manner. And you see that on full display, for example, with anti-mask behavior. I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't care if, if I get other people sick. If you die, you die. It's just the way it is. And so that's the, the, the fact that these issues are becoming politicized become very understandable and explicable and have become uh, part of the Republican Party when you understand that Trumpism is really, truly about declinism. It's about loss. It's about being replaced. Mike, I want to ask you one closing question that I've asked many other guests so far, which is, if you had five minutes with Donald Trump in a room alone, knowing everything that you know about him and everything we've discussed today, what would you tell him? Wow, what a what a great question. He 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 strikes. He, you know, it's so it's, it's a great question because it personalizes the abstract so much, and we spend so much time um, mentally focusing on who he is, what makes him tick, how to beat him. Uh, you know, politically. Um, look, I think that Donald Trump is a transformative figure in American politics in a way that is a segue to a new emergent force in this country. And I'm getting to your, I'm getting to the answer in just a second. <laughs> the, the, the idea that Donald Trump, I think, represents, I think really for the first time, a, a, a president who believes genuinely in, in that America is, is, is losing uh, its place in the world. And that's its identity. The irony is he talks about making America great again when you can never go back to yesterday. So I think the questions that I would ask him, uh, the discussion I would want to have about him is, boy, what I think I, I would like to find something, question and, and push deep if there is any, even in a personal setting where he's not on stage, when he's not on Twitter being public, is there yeah. any element of aspiration or optimism that has so mm-hmm. defined the American experiment for 250 years and has always been embodied in our leader? Is there something, anything that you can personally connect with, with the American people that makes us as a people believe that we are still and can remain a shining city on the hill. Thanks, Mike, for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Ron. It's always great to talk to you. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.